Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Food insecurity and interest rates are both going in the wrong direction. Find out how Hamilton's office vacancy rate compares to the national average. NATO leaders meet with Ukraine's president today. Pickleball players are landing on the injured list. And how the CFL and the Guinness Book of World Records became connected. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It is expected that the Bank of Canada is going to raise its key lending rate, which will force interest rates up by what many economists believe will be a quarter of a percent to an even 5% from the Bank of Canada. Uh, a number that we have not seen in, well, about two decades, a little bit more than two decades. And that is going to make everything just a little bit more expensive, including food. We've seen the cost of food rise exponentially over the last couple of years. Last year at this time, it was 10% higher than in 2021. This year, food has risen 9% over last year. So really in the last two years, we've seen about a 20% increase in the cost of food alone. That is really translated into food insecurity. In Hamilton and, well, beyond as well. And and to that effect, there are some local officials that are sounding the alarm about the increased need for emergency food support. Karen Randall is the interim chief executive officer with Hamilton Food Share and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Karen, good morning. Welcome to the program. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. When it comes to food insecurity, what are you seeing in Hamilton this summer? What we're seeing in Hamilton this summer is an absolute crisis in our emergency food system. And so when you say crisis, what are what does that mean? What are we looking at? Well, last year at this time, we were supporting about um, 8,500 visits every month. And this past March, we were at 12,000 visits. So we've seen a 40% increase in the number of visits being made to food banks across the city every single month. And this translates into Hamilton's emergency food system feeding about 33,000 individuals every month through our food bank programs. So how are you managing that? Well, the emergency food system in Hamilton is quite an incredible group of hunger relief organizations and programs we work collaboratively to ensure that we're able to meet needs through, um, you know, our fundraising efforts, our food raising efforts. We continue to be out there trying to find new food sources, finding new ways to meet this increased need. But I also um, want to just say a thank you to everyone who's out there doing the work in the community because, you know, seeing a 40% increase and actually being able to continue to do the work and make sure everybody experiencing hunger has what they need is, is such an achievement. So we have an incredible system in place in Hamilton. That being said, we collectively as a system are sounding an alarm because we don't know how much more we can do with the first, with the existing infrastructure we all have. As part of that 40% increase this year over last year, I would assume that a lot of that increase is based on new households or new individuals accessing food banks. Uh, we are seeing two things happening. One is we are seeing new households who have never needed a food bank before. We're seeing a significant increase in people who are working 
needing to come to food banks to access groceries. But we're also seeing households who maybe needed the support of a food bank once a month needing to come two or three times because money they would have been able to spend on food isn't purchasing enough food and it's not lasting as long as it used to. As you said, there's a 19% increase in the cost of food. So people are just not able to purchase what they used to, which makes them increasingly reliant on the emergency food system. And and the collateral damages, not only has the price of food gone up, but so has just the, the overall cost of living, whether it's interest rates on a credit card, rental rates going up, and most people will say, well, listen, I need a roof over my head. I'll cut on my food spending. Therefore, I'm going to have to get food somewhere, somehow. So I'm going to have to visit a food bank. Absolutely. Uh, 58% of the households who access food banks in Hamilton are paying more than 50% of their total income on rent and utilities. And this puts someone at an extremely high risk of homelessness. So uh, we know through a research project we did with McMaster last year that 46% of the households that participated in a survey said they would absolutely become homeless if they didn't have the supports of the emergency food banks because they would have to use the money they pay for their housing on food. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Karen Randall, the interim CEO of Hamilton Food Share, and we're talking about uh, food insecurity in this city. Now, I know that Hamilton Food Share is part of the Hamilton Emergency Food Strategic Planning Committee. I think I got that right. And yeah. uh, you, you want to meet with the mayor and city council as well on a go-forward plan on, on how to solve this crisis. What, what do you hope that plan looks like? Well, we, we're in process, actually, of having those meetings. We've had a really incredible response from um, our city councillors and from the mayor's office in recognizing the vital role this sector plays in keeping people housed, but also ensuring people have food to eat. So our hope is to really um, inform everyone on city council of the crisis that's happening, of the impact of the programs that we're running and that we're really reaching a point of capacity and what happens if people are not able to get the food they need from the food bank system because we're not able to provide it. So we're really asking that the city look at where we fit into the housing and homelessness strategy and where we fit in terms of finding some funding within that strategy to ensure the sustainability of these programs that are so important across the city. I know that summertime is a difficult time in terms of donations for food banks. People just don't think of it. They, you know, around the holidays they will, but during the summer they don't. Yeah. How can how can people make a donation this summer? Yeah, it's it's kind of, uh, there's two issues we see in the summer. One is that we see a significant decrease in donations, but the other is that we see an increase in access. A lot of families rely on school nutrition programs to help feed their children, and those programs all close through the summer. So we see an increase in the summer months, especially for families with school-aged children. So what I would just say is every time you give, it makes an impact, whether it's a single can of food, whether it's a dollar, whether it's $20. 
When you give to your emergency food bank, when you support this system, it means one of your neighbors is going to be able to eat that day. And that is such a powerful impact. So we just want to encourage people to continue to give and to continue to do food drives and fun drives and and be a part of making sure everyone in Hamilton has something to eat. And residents can do so by going online to hamiltonfoodshare.org or supporting charities like the 900 CHML Children's Fund, which uh, donates to uh, Food Share as well. Karen, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Karen Randall is the interim CEO of Hamilton Food Share. More details online, hamiltonfoodshare.org. Some of the stats that she had unleashed were absolutely sobering as of as of this past March, just a couple of months ago. I'm sure this is going to be the case for the rest of the year. Food bank visits have increased by 40% compared to last year. 12,000 visits each and every month. That is absolutely sobering to hear. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about your pocketbook this morning. And despite, you know, the annual inflation rate cooling in May to 3.4%, a much different story than what we saw last year at this time. Many economists are expecting the Bank of Canada to once again announce an interest rate hike today. Right now we're standing at 4.75%. Looks like it's going to go up a quarter of a percentage point to 5% even, a number we haven't seen in about two decades. What's that going to do to your bank account, to your pocketbook, to your variable rate mortgage? Here to talk about it is Brian Hogman, principal broker and founder of Mission 35 Mortgages, also the author of How to Get Mortgage Free Really Effing Fast. Brian, good morning. How are you? Uh, living the dream, Rick. Living the dream. Well, a couple hours prior to the Bank of Canada's announcement, I'm still living the dream. <laughs> what What do you think the impact is going to be on this? Well, you know what? I th- it's interesting. I was looking at some numbers, and it's it's interesting because around only 40% of mortgage holders are actually affected right now by rising rates because the other 60% have a fixed rate. And uh, if you got a fixed rate a year, two, three years ago, you're definitely not touching it. And the other ones are in a static variable rate mortgage where the payment doesn't get affected. However, the amortization gets bigger. So um, it's definitely going to have an effect on uh, people's pocketbook. It, it's minimal, but it feels like death by a thousand punches, I think. That 60-40 split the variable to fixed. Has that been relatively steady for the last little while? Um, I think it continually changes because I see, you know, in our uh, business, we see more and more people converting to fixed, converting to, say, a two-year fixed or three-year fixed. Uh, Traditionally, you would see way more people in variable rate mortgages because historically they've really outperformed the fixed rates. Uh, As we can see now, especially over the past 18 months, it's quite clear that the fixed rate is outperforming the variable rate. Is this the last rate hike, do you think, of 2023? Or are we in store for more hikes down the road? Oh, gosh. You know what? It's uh, hard to say. My crystal ball seems to change uh, with TIFF all the way along the line. But <laughs> I would say some people are predicting another quarter point in September as well, too. And I think it's kind of like the government or the Bank of Canada saying, we're going to put the chlorine in the water. We're going to dump a whole bunch of tubs into it to shock the pool and make sure that we have really tamped this inflation fire under control. Um, but I think, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll see a pause later because these interest rate increases have a real long lagging effect. Every single month, mortgages come up for renewal. But again, 60% of them haven't. So a lot of people, it hasn't affected yet. What's the most common question you get uh, from people that you're helping? Help. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> SOS. Help. help me. 
Um, I would say the most common question is is pretty much what you just said is when will interest rates start to drop? And I think it's a, it's a great question, but maybe the wrong strategy. I think you really need to look at your, your personal situation. There's never been a moment in time, and I've done this for a long, long time, over 20 years, where people have been really trying to predict the market and interest rates because there's so much knowledge out there. I think the question you have to ask is what's my budget, what can I afford and what are my goals? Because interest, as we've seen, especially over the last 18 months, there could be extenuating circumstances, could be government policy changes, all those things can affect a prediction of an interest rate. So if you really stay true to your goals, your budget um, and ask that question, um, you can really reduce that uh, mortgage anxiety that I see a lot of people having today. Brian Hogman is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Brian is a principal broker and founder of Mission 35 Mortgages. Check them out online at mission35.com. There are some suggestions that maybe we should have 50 or 60-year amortizations. I think Singapore has something like a 90-year amortization. Is that just crazy talk? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think mortgage rules have always become more conservative. So that would be uh, a, a change in directions. And that would be like buying a house for your grandkids, Rick. Instead of buying a house for you, you're buying it for two generations down the line. Um, I, I, you know, I do see merit in it sometimes with first time home buyers because it seems like the price of housing is not necessarily going to go down. However, uh, new regulation, there are actually amortizations out there today that are in the 40, 50, 60 year because of the static payment mortgages. I, I think there is merit to it if rolled out correctly. However, I don't think with this government, with the inflation that we've seen, that we'll see that anytime soon. So, Well, that's, that's probably some good news because you're just delaying the inevitable and you're probably never going to pay it off. <laughs> Very true, right? And the other thing too is that because we're trying to keep housing prices under control, if we ended up enacting a policy where we could extend amortizations, you could just imagine the uh, prices would just continue to go through the roof because people could qualify for more. And typically people operate at the end of their budget a lot of times, and that would just drive the prices up. So I agree with that. I don't think we'll see those extended AMs. I think the extended AMs we do see right now will be reduced with uh, some new policy that's going to be coming out in November. So watch out for that. All right. We will watch out for that and we'll hook up with you at that time. Brian, appreciate the time. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Brian Hogman, Principal Broker, Founder, Mission 35 Mortgages, also the author of How to Get Mortgage Free Really Effing Fast, online at mission35.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked a lot about things that impact your pocketbook on the show today. And, well, if you work for a company that has left its... its um, footprint in a downtown core, you're not alone. Many businesses have said, you know what, with remote or hybrid work now a thing, we don't, we don't really need the office space, the traditional office space in downtown core, wherever your company was set up. In fact, the office vacancy rate in Canada climbed to 18.1% in the second quarter of this year. That is the highest that it's been in about 30 years. Here in Hamilton, the downtown office vacancy rate is just over 13%. So we're lower than the national rate, but still relatively high. Justin Venancio is a senior sales representative and realty advisor with Collier's Real Estate Management Services and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Justin, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. We're, we are well into the post-COVID era, yet many offices, as we've heard with these numbers, remain dark. Is it, is it going to get worse before it gets better? We do start. We are starting to see a, a big push to return to office. Uh, what we are seeing, though, is, is more of the suburban markets benefiting from that. We found that employers are, are realizing that employees want to be closer to home. They don't necessarily want to waste their commute to to travel to the downtown core, pay for parking, et cetera. So we are seeing a lot more uh, transactions happening for the office market in that kind of secondary market uh, with amenities close by, close to home, close to the, the children's school, et cetera. So we are seeing a return. The, the, the downtown office market is, is doing a lot worse than the suburban, but um, we are definitely seeing a, a return back. And most of the deals are happening kind of sub 5,000 square feet now, whereas opposed to the, you know, eight to 10,000 square foot floor plates previously to COVID, now we're seeing, you know, maybe a, a small downtown location of 1,500 square feet and then a, a suburban office of, of another 15, 2,000 square feet to kind of give a balance. Yeah, so that national office vacancy rate is at 18.1%. The downtown office vacancy rate is at 189 and the suburban one is 17.1%. Are those numbers troubling from a, a business standpoint, whether it's companies or landlords? Uh, it, it is. So the, the landlords, are, the way they're battling back is, again, they, were, they wanted to do the 10,000-foot the leases before and have one tenant per floor type of thing, but they, they have gotten a, a used to dividing up the floors to 1,500-foot, 2,000-foot units to try to accommodate smaller users for that. Hamilton councillors recently approved a strategy to address office vacancies in our downtown core. They include uh, increased financial incentives, uh, support for businesses experiencing vandalism. Are these kind of measures bound to have a positive impact? Yeah, I, I believe so. And, and a lot of the landlords did have to give inducements to tenants, whether it be free rent or whether it be... Uh, bigger allowance to build out the space to their liking. So the landlords were taking hits off of that to save their face rates. So for the, the councillors to step up, that's, that's great news. Justin Venancio is a senior sales representative and realty advisor with Collier's Real Estate Management Services. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about office vacancy rates here in this country and in this city. And I know that Collier's has conducted a number of surveys as part of its Office Evolution series. Have you found some commonalities within the series? Uh, we have. So, like I said, it's more of that hub and spoke model where they're they're kind of pushing away from downtown cores for flagship offices and, and going more to the, the suburban markets. Uh, so we are seeing a, a push for that. And a lot of groups, we are representing a couple groups uh, on a North American level, and, and they've all said the same thing, that they want to kind of shy away from the downtown markets as, as their hub and, and have kind of a hub and spoke model instead where they, they branch out into more suburban markets and more secondary markets. Is that the future of the office space? Uh, I do believe so. I do believe that we still will have a downtown core with, with downtown office users. But again, we're, we're just scaling back instead of, you know, taking up more space in, in one market. How is this affecting uh, rental rates when it comes to landlords trying to entice businesses to get into their buildings? So all our all our landlords that we're representing, like I said, we're we're still kind of saving our face rates and, and doing deals very close to ask with an annual escalation. Um, but but tenants are asking for a couple more months fixturing period for free rent to get the space ready, 
or um, asking the landlords for a bigger uh, tenant improvement allowance to build out the space a little bit nicer. I would imagine with the supply-demand scenario that uh, we're seeing here, that landlords got to get pretty creative in enticing businesses to set up shop in their buildings. 100%. And, and we've even seen landlords bring in different amenities. My office, we, they put a gym in the basement uh, that's, that's free for the tenants. We've heard of some landlords even putting golf simulators in to, <laughs> to get people back into the office. So they are, they are getting pretty creative with uh, how they can entice tenants back to the office. Very interesting. Justin, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. Justin Venencio is a senior sales representative and realty advisor at Collier's Real Estate Management Services. I'd love a golf simulator in the office. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but that would be cool. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. NATO Summit continuing today in Lithuania kicked off yesterday. It's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the 31 NATO members gathering together to talk about, well, a number of things, including Ukraine and and what to do. And Ukraine desperately wants to get into NATO because, as you know, according to Article 5, an attack on one NATO nation means it's an attack on all, and all of the NATO alliance members would gather together to fight back at the aggressor in this case. In this case, it's Russia, as we know, invading Ukraine. Um, But given that, NATO cannot, according to its rules and regulations, cannot say, all right, Ukraine, come on in. It's just not going to happen. NATO leaders, though, say that they are committed to inviting Ukraine into their alliance when conditions are met, i.e. when the war comes to an end. We all know that there's a war raging right now. So while the war is raging, we'll continue to support Ukrainians fighting for their freedom and ours. We will continue to provide military support, financial support, humanitarian support. That is Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, who says that, yeah, Canada's in favor of Ukraine uh, coming into NATO, but when conditions allow. There's always there's always a but in this sentence. Stephen Sademan is the Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University and the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mr. Sademan, good morning. How are you? My, I'm doing well. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says the timeline for his country's entry into the NATO alliance is absurd. He's just playing politics here, right? Pretty much. He already is at the summit uh, this morning, was reported to be in good spirits. He's had good meetings. So I think he expressed his displeasure at at not a faster membership process. But I don't think anybody was really expecting that Ukraine was going to be welcomed into NATO anytime too soon. So I think that was partly about playing to his domestic audience, partly about pressuring NATO countries to do more in other ways to help them. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion of security assurances that are more robust than the ones that were given long ago when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for security assurances. Zelensky is going to meet with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, U.S. President Joe Biden, and uh, other NATO uh, counterparts today in what's being called the NATO-Ukraine Council. What is this council's aim? What are they hoping to achieve? Well, the irony of this is that there was once a NATO-Russia council, and the idea is to have uh, an, a, a relationship where some outside country, before Russia, now Ukraine, basically be on an equal par with the rest of NATO and and be um, essentially a member in all ways except for the most crucial one, which is Article 5. So that means that whenever there are issues relating to Ukraine, that when NATO discusses them, 
most of the time Ukraine will be there to, to share its perspectives as opposed to being left outside the room. Now, Russia is obviously watching closely what is happening in Lithuania. What kind of response should we expect from President Vladimir Putin? Well, a lot of talk, but he should. we also should be expecting a lot of crying and disappointment because uh, Putin's big goal before 2014 was to disrupt the NATO alliance. And Crimea, the aggression there, did the opposite. And then in 2022, uh, the invasion of, of Ukraine did the opposite. And, and since then, it's been just a constant repetition of NATO doing more and more and more to support Ukraine and the alliance itself being united. We've had a lot of discussion this week about disagreements. But on the big things, you know, NATO is united, and that's really going to be very upsetting to, to Putin. But there's not a whole lot he can do about it. He's barely containing his own uh, his own military pieces. He's <laughs> barely uh, keeping this war going. Uh, we heard earlier from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who says that 11 alliance members are now meeting or exceeding that uh, 2% of GDP benchmark for defense spending. He's urging other alliances, all all alliance members, to get to that 2%. From a Canadian standpoint, we're, we're not there. There's no commitment to get there at all. Are we looking bad on the national front? Yeah, we're looking not great, but it's a combination of things. So uh, we look bad on, on this aspect. We look good on what we've been doing in Latvia, that uh, when um, after 2014, when NATO moved to ha put forces into the Baltics, uh, they were looking for some country to lead in Latvia and and Canada was asked and Canada stood up and Canada has been doing a very good job given difficult circumstances of managing nine other countries uh, as, as the leader of the, of the Latvia effort. And so the real eye on Canada for this week was not so much, are they going to get 2% to tomorrow? Because everybody knew that was not going to happen. But A, how much they were going to invest in Latvia and B, whether they would start moving towards 2%. You know, that, that essentially means spending more money in the military not necessarily getting there uh, tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. So I think overall, uh, I think expectations are met or exceeded. Uh, I think the more important questions right now, rather than asking about 2%, is the money that was committed to Latvia, uh, the 2.6 billion, which is actually 1.2 billion of new money, is that gonna be enough to build the infrastructure for the brigade, because right now we're moving from having a thousand NATO forces in in Latvia and roughly 800 Canadian to 2,000 Canadian and overall 3,000 or more international troops in Latvia. Do we have enough money to pay for the barracks? Do we have enough money to pay for new cafeterias? Do we have more money to pay for the training grounds? I'm not sure the $1.2 billion of new money is sufficient over the next three years to cover the increased costs of operating in Latvia. I think that's where the attention should be going rather than sort of the lousy metric of 2%. Hmm. Very interesting stuff. Always great analysis from uh, Stephen Sabin. Appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Stephen Sabin is the Patterson Chair of International Affairs at Carleton University, Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pickleball, you've heard about this, right? It's one of the fastest growing sports. It combines ping pong and tennis. It's been around for decades, to be honest, but its popularity has really exploded in recent years. But... You knew there was a butt coming. There's a new report out that shows more and more pickleball players are getting injured on the court. And that 85% of those injuries were felt by people who are 60 plus. So 
What gives? What's going on? Carolyn Buck is the president of Pickleball Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Carolyn, good morning. How are you? Hello, Carolyn. Do we have you? Yeah, hello. There you are. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Why? Let's start with this. Why has pickleball become so popular? Um, It's it's basically, it's an easy sport to pick up. Uh, It doesn't take a lot of equipment. Really, when you first try it, you can just go out. Often, like our club, we provide you a paddle. So you need to just get yourself out there and get going, and then you get hooked. So, <laughs> What is the draw? Why is it so appealing? Is it because it's simple to play? It is very simple. The learning curve is very simple. It, because a lot of us in our youth have played things like ping pong or tennis or whatever, so a racket sport. Uh, and it's social. And a lot of people who are joining it, initially, like you said, it was in it was made for people who are retired mostly or older. Hmm. So it's because of the social aspect of getting out, doing something. Where are Hamilton pickleball games played? And, and how many local players are there? Okay, in my club at Pickleball Hamilton, we currently have 500 members. Uh, we've had to close memberships for full-time memberships. We do have a few uh, public memberships uh, left, which is unfortunately gives you limited ability. But that's only a small portion of the pickleball players in Hamilton. Pickleball uh, is also played down at Confederation Park. The city has some beautiful courts down there. And there's other courts scattered across the city that the city's been putting lines on old tennis courts to play. So I'm going to estimate in the city, you're probably looking at maybe 1,500 to 2,000 players. Wow, that's pretty cool. And a lot of them are 60-plus, which is awesome to see because not only are they social, but they're staying active as well. Oh, yeah, exactly. You'd be amazed... Um, Last year, she, she hasn't come out this year, but I know there are people this age playing. She was 83 years old and wow. was playing with us and quite active, quite engaged. So it's, you can play to your ability. That's the best thing. We have people from beginners to almost a pro level. So there's an enjoyable, uh, comfortable level for everyone to play at. Very cool. Carolyn Buck is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Carolyn is the president of Pickleball Hamilton. You can check out their website at pickleballhamilton.com. The question is, though, is pickleball in a bit of a pickle when it comes to players landing on the injured list? Um, to a certain degree, I don't think that we're any different than most other sports that people pick, pick up late in life. Um, like, like myself, I came to pickleball after I retired, but I also brought with me some injuries from my youth. Huh. Um, but also a lot of us have worked our lives. We sat in a car, commuted, and sat at a desk and commuted and taken care of our families. So you lose that muscle tone over the years, and then all of a sudden you want to jump back into it. So some of that is related to that. It, it's, it's almost like your muscles have to go through a learning curve. So you've got some strains and sprains, definitely. And pickleball, unlike other sports, the movement is different. It's a side-to-side movement, and our bodies aren't generally engineered to do that for any period of time. It's mostly back and forth. So the injuries, although we have them, they're mostly, like I said, sprains and strains, uh, nothing really major, and I guess physiotherapists therapists are enjoying us. <laughs> they, they've seen a um, bit of a boost, yeah? Yeah, I mean, some of us, like I said myself, I bring injuries to the game, and it's, it's aggravated by the movement, for sure. Right. But it's all about stretching and preparing and warming up, like anything. We all get so excited when we get to the pickleball court. Everybody just wants to go out there and say, hey, get your paddle, come on, let's go. We, we all have to remember to take that, you know, even even two minutes just to warm up and stretch. And I think that we would see a real drop 
in the number of injuries. Yeah, that would it make took that time. That would make all the difference in the world. What are those? You mentioned, you know, sprains and strains. The most common body parts that are suffering that is it is it the ankles, the knees, the wrists, the hips? Uh, the knees, for sure. If you go to a pickleball court, you'll see a lot of knee braces. Uh, we have people like things like your your calves. Uh, because of the movement again in your stretching, your calves are being pulled. Hmm. So it's it's mostly from yeah, like it's it's mostly knees and calves for the most part. And then we're getting people now as they get more proficient at the game, getting a tennis elbow because of the amount of play that some of these players, not myself personally, are playing sometimes four to six hours a day. Oh wow. Yeah, and it, and it's also for some of the newer players that get that is how you're holding the paddle. If you've got that death grip on the paddle you're going to have a problem with your elbow. So it's an educational purpose, uh, an educational curve at that point. So the recommendation for any new player is to, hey, stretch it out, play loose, have fun, and, well, don't get hurt. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we, we stress safety at our court all the time when we, uh, I've often uh, engaged with some of the newer players, and we just say, take it easy, don't overdo it at first. Because there is a learning curve, and if you can't get that ball right away, don't go for it. It's not worth it. And you'd be surprised next week you can get that ball. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Carolyn, thanks for joining us today, and uh, good luck on the pickleball court today. Thank you very much. Okay. Carolyn Buck is the president of Pickleball Hamilton. More details online, pickleballhamilton.com. As you heard, though, I mean, they're, they're full in terms of full-time memberships. This sport is as absolutely mushroom-clouded over the years, which is great to see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Sporting a Mike O'Shea-like beard while racking up the frequent flyer points, our next guest is a worthy candidate for being the most interesting man in the world. If the name Bobby Dubow rings a bell, well, it should. It's been trending on social media. If you're a fan of the Canadian Football League, you now definitely know the name. Bobby Dubow of Delta, B.C., is a world record holder after he watched a CFL game in nine different stadiums over a 15-day period ending on Sunday in B.C. Bobby Dubow, the CFL superfan and world record holder, joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Bobby, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rick. Thanks for having me on. How do you feel physically, mentally, psychologically after visiting all nine CFL stadiums in just 15 days? I mean, that's one hell of a road trip. Uh, yeah, I've, it's pretty incredible. I'm more of just relieved now that I was able to do it. Uh, it wasn't just me getting to the games. and In some cities, it was where the games even be played. So uh, I'm glad I got nothing to worry about uh, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Most CFL fans might make a couple of road trips in a season, including maybe a trip to the Grey Cup. You managed to do in two weeks what most fans won't do in their lifetime. How did you come up with this idea? Uh, well, I was at a Alouette's game last year. Um, I was planning on getting out to Nova Scotia, but I was they, because of Hurricane Fiona, I couldn't get out. I was stuck waiting it out in Montreal. I saw the Red Blacks were playing the next day. And went to a game there with some of my uh, cousins out there. So I kind of got the idea to maybe do it all in one year uh, this season. And when the schedule came out, it was a really weird anomaly where uh, I was able to do it within 15 days. So once I saw that, I thought, uh, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I every, every little kid says they want to be in the Guinness Book of World Records, right? They don't want to be a doctor or a, a lawyer or an <laughs> astronaut. Uh, just be in that book with all the weirdos in it. So uh, now I'm uh, hopefully I'll, I'm going to be a part of it. 
Did you have any difficulty mapping out how you would execute your game plan in, in traveling from city to city, knowing that you know the travel industry has gone through some bumps and bruises post COVID? Uh, I wasn't like I, th- I guess my concern was the first few games I was doing some smaller airlines, um, although even the bigger ones have their issues now. But uh, I, I was flying some pretty standard routes. I was making sure I had. 12 16 hours before uh before game time at the time i landed so i gave myself plenty of room except for this last uh saturday saturday night game in hamilton and then a sunday afternoon game in can or in uh, vancouver but that toronto to vancouver route is uh pretty reliable uh, given given the other ones in, in canada <laughs> Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Bobby Dubow of Delta, BC. He is a Guinness Book of World Record holder after he watched a CFL game in nine different stadiums over a 15-day period. It all wrapped up on Sunday at BC Play Stadium in Vancouver. How much money does something like this cost? Uh, well, I've, I have family in a lot of these cities, so I uh, got to stay for free in Ottawa, Winnipeg, uh, Calgary, and then got rides up uh, to Edmonton and uh, pick up from the airport back and forth in a lot of these cities. So I was able to save a lot of money there. I booked these. I booked this trip back in February before I even knew it was approved for the record. So uh, with that much advance notice, like the the flights were pretty reasonable in terms of price. So it not as much as you think. There's a guy who did it in the NFL, and I'm sure he spent at least 100 times more than I did on this one. <laughs> well, it pays to have only nine teams in the league, I guess. Um, For sure. Have you been on vacation from work over the last couple of weeks? Uh, I, I do a lot of work over the phone, I guess. So uh, I was able to kind of do it while, um, while attempting the record. Um, so like, I'm, in, I'm in lucky enough where I, I was able to kind of focus on, uh, on each game at a time. Uh, rather than worrying about being tied to a tied to a desk or anything like nice. that, what did your family and friends think about what you accomplished here? Uh, they, they think it's pretty cool now. Uh, when <laughs> I planned the trip originally, they they didn't really seem to uh, be too bothered with it. But uh, I've got my uh, I missed my grandmother's ninety first birthday on uh, July second because I was doing this. But she's been watching every game. She's watched the CFL uh, for her whole life. She's a huge fan. So. Uh, every, uh, the last few games, she's actually got to see me on TV. So, uh, it's kind of been, uh, that's her gift, uh, instead of me, uh, being present at her birthday, I was on her TV screen a few times. <laughs> that is pretty cool. How are you handling, uh, this, this instant fame? I like, honestly, I thought there'd be a lot more negative. Like it's been all positive. I'm waiting for like the jokes and, uh, and stuff to come and say, Oh, anybody could do that. Look at this guy. But uh, no, all the feedback has been incredible, and everybody uh, at the games, the media, the teams—they've all been super welcoming. And uh, I, pre- like, I don't know, I've, I'm a I'm a D-list celebrity in Canada for a few minutes here, and I'm, <laughs> I'm loving every minute of it. As you should. Bobby Dubois is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He is the new world record holder after watching a CFL game in nine different stadiums over a 15-day period. For all the CFL fans who've not been to every CFL stadium, what's the one venue and and maybe game day experience that they have to try out for themselves? Um, I have to say uh, Saskatchewan. Um, They've got the before and after. 
especially if he can get an afternoon game. I was lucky to go to the Labor Day Classic a few years ago, and along with some season ticket holders, I ended up in in people's homes and ended up hanging out for like eight hours with them after. So uh, I guess I'd say the Rough Riders is probably the best game day experience as a whole. Uh, Hamilton's great too. I'm not gonna not gonna slander them at all, but uh, I think for the for the best experience, uniquely C, uh, experience in the CFL, I'd say uh, Saskatchewan. That's more than fair. What is the best thing you ate on your record breaking excursion? The green and gold dog was good in uh, Edmonton. That's a hot dog with mac and cheese and jalapenos. I've wow. heard that usually the mac and cheese is cold. Mine wasn't, so I, I guess I got lucky. But I was in Hamilton and I saw pickle on a stick, and even the 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 <laughs> person working the cash like, where what is that? Where is it? They didn't even have it. I had to go to a different level to get it, and I never did get around to uh, to trying that pickle on a stick. So uh, one reason to come back to Hamilton one day, I guess. Absolutely, as the saying goes, all records are meant to be broken. Is this a record that can be broken? Well, you need three weekends, so if it will be broken. It would have it would be like within a few hours or something. But hey, if somebody wants to do it, I'd go for it. Um, records are made to be broken, like you said, and I'm just happy to uh, to be the first one to set it. Well, and it's a high bar, that is for sure, Bobby. Uh, congrats on on getting into the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, thanks for promoting the CFL and just being a super fan of the league. And uh, good luck on your next record breaking attempt. <laughs> I think I'm done with the records for now, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate this. Sentiment. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Thanks again to Bobby Dubow. Little known fact, he also took in the MLB All-Star Home Run Derby Monday night in Seattle and uh, and now is resting. He says he needed a break, but at least he got in the Home Run Derby. Pretty cool story. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.